Oh, that's on me. Let me let's begin this morning squarely in Scripture. Colossians chapter 1. Would you turn there? I'll, I'll do that as well. Oops, I'm already there. How about that? Colossians 1, and we're going to read verses 24 to 29. Colossians 1, 24 to 29. We'll read it together, and then I'll preach it. How about that? Paul's ministry to this church. Just got a little bit of history there from our sermon bumper. He says this, Now rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I'm, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of his mysteries, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory." Verse 28, him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all of his energy that powerfully works within me. Question, from this text and from life, from your spiritual experience, what is the goal? Is there a goal? How many of you this weekend or this week, you watched a game, some athletic event on television, or you had a child who participated in some athletic event, anybody? And you know, right, you watched something, you watched your child, your team play, and how many of you know if they won or lost, if your team won or lost? Everybody, right? Every first hand that went up raised their hand. Again, you know if your team won because there's a goal, because keeping score, you know if you win or lose, but what is the goal? Why are we here? What's the purpose of why we're here? I want to give you this morning what that is from Colossians 1. The goal is growth. The goal is that you would grow. He says in verse 28 that we would be mature in Christ. In the guided prayer that Laura McAlpin read, similar thought from Ephesians, that we wouldn't just remain in our infancy, but that we would grow. Anybody have a story of growing up, like where you realize you had to grow up, but you weren't as mature as you thought you were? that you didn't have what it took for the next season. I, there's been four times in my life that I can think of. I've preached to some of you before about this, but four times in my life where I had to grow up, where God spoke to me. Twice he spoke through Susan to me. But I needed to grow up. My immaturity was not going to take us to the next level that we needed to be at. So growing up is really important. So question, first question, what's the goal? The goal is to grow. The, the, the goal is that you would be mature, that you would be complete, lacking in nothing. Grow in what? Think about it for a second. What's the goal? To grow your portfolio, to grow your business, to grow attendance, to grow your following, to grow your own, to grow something out back? What is the goal? To grow what? In an answer, in one word, is to grow your faith. Think about this for a second. Think about a synonym. Think about the word trust. Are you a naturally trusting person? Or are you naturally suspicious? If you're sitting next to someone that knows you well, look over and ask them now. Are you a naturally trusting person? Or are you naturally suspicious? If you were parented really well, if you've had a strong person in your life who they weren't perfect, but they were a person of integrity, where even when they didn't seem to be giving you their word, you knew they would come around. Well, dad's not here, but he'll be here. Hey, mom is not, you know, she'll come through. If you had someone like that in your life, if that's how you grew up, then more times than not, you're going to be a naturally trusting person. But you got to be careful, right? Because you'll be naive and gullible. But if you didn't have that, if your life was 
touched by the insecurity of not having someone around that you could count on. When someone gave you their word, they didn't keep their word, then you're more times than not, you're a suspicious person. Look, great relationships are built on trust. I'm not telling you anything new today. I just want you to think about it. But great relationships are built on trust. You can count on someone. They're going to do what they said they're going to do. That person is trustworthy. We talk about it as a staff team, that there's a gap, an expectation gap, or a gap between what we expect and what we experience, that in that gap, if we love each other in Jesus, we're going to fill that gap with trust first. Okay, there's a reason they're late. There's a reason that our staff, even though I told them to park way past the gym, they're parked close to the building today. There's a reason for that, right? Until we have staff meeting on Tuesday, we're not going to talk about it. But there's a reason, right? But you want to put trust, not suspicion there first, right? And that is a mark of healthy, good relationships, and the opposite is true. Look, don't, don't look around, but some of us are trying to build back trust. The word has been broken. The the marriage has been hurt. The, the children are rocked. They're wondering about mom. They're wondering about dad. They're wondering about you. And you're endeavoring to fight. I want to encourage you to fight. I want to encourage you to build it back. But good relationships are built on trust. And from the beginning, the story in the garden of man, our blind spots and our broken places, the busted upness about our humanity, it goes back to that. If God gave these people blessing. They were in a garden, and things were good, and they had blessing. Listen, I bet you, like your life today, they had blessing all around them. You got blessings, don't you? You got things that you could, ah, oh, this should, I should derive joy from this. I, I need to proclaim God's goodness. Look at what God's doing. Look at, look at what I have. Look at what he's done. You have that, but they wanted what they couldn't have. They wanted what they shouldn't get. And this discontentment that exists in us today, it resided in them and they wanted to get. And listen, at the core of it is, God, can you be trusted? God, are you withholding something good from me? And what that leads to is withdrawal, passivity, active rebellion of God. You're withholding something good from me. Anybody believe that today? Don't raise your hand, okay? Because we're going to judge you. But do you believe in the midst of your blessing that God's holding, withholding that good thing from you? I mean, not, nobody in this room is getting everything they want, and we wouldn't want to live with you if you were. But do you believe fundamentally God is withholding something good? At the core of that is, can you trust Him? And trust is a big thing. Trust is a big thing with Jesus. I was reading Matthew 8 a little bit ago. Uh, Matthew 8, a couple of stories here. When Jesus heard this, not giving you any context, He's healing people. He's getting famous. Uh, religious authorities are starting to uh, chase Him. It's going to ultimately lead to His death. But here we are in this part. He says, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed and said to those following him, truly I tell you, I have not found faith, and I have found anyone in Israel with such great faith. Verse 13 of Matthew 8. Then Jesus said to the centurion, go, let it be done, just as you have believed, as you had faith, that it would be so. And his servant was healed at that moment. Verse 26, here's a contrast. The guys who should have got it didn't. You of little faith, why are you so afraid? Luke 7, verse 50. Here's a principle for all of us. Jesus said to the woman, one he had just healed, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Keep that up for a second. Can I tell you, without faith, you won't have peace. You'll be unsettled. Let me put it in the contrast. If you live with doubt and you only feed your doubt and you're proud of your cynicism because you're so intelligent and you're not a person of faith, you claim, and you mock people who are, I will say to you, you're struggling to find this evasive peace. Until you can settle in a faith, until you can believe that God is good, 
and it's worth fighting for, you're not going to have a settled peace in your life. Faith is a big deal to Jesus. It's such a big deal that Fondren Church leaders, I was one of them. I was a peer among peers, and we were at a cabin in the woods, and we were praying several years ago. We went, and we had different stations inside and outside, in the woods and in the cabin and by the fire and upstairs and on the screen porch. And we, A wonderful setting. And we were anchored with different prayer stations where we would kneel and pray before God's Word about us and our church. And we were all, we came back in a room and all of us, in a very unique and compelling way, we were pulled. I was, the, I was actually the silent one in the room, but we were all drawn like a magnet to Galatians 5, 6. It's why we're here as a church. We said, this is why we exist. The only thing that matters, the only thing that counts is what? Faith expressing itself through love. When church gets too complicated, when life becomes too difficult, when people are quarreling. By the way, Scripture says that if you're quarrelsome, you shouldn't lead in the church. Like, disqualified. What if you give a lot of money? Shouldn't lead in the church. What if you're so... Shouldn't lead in the church. But what we won't quarrel about are a lot of peripheral matters because the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. So we decided let's go forward where leaders at Fonder, get this, leaders get to lead. Leaders are empowered to lead. But leaders don't do the work. Leaders empower other people to be equipped to do the work. The only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. So question, what's the goal? Growth. Grow what? What does God want you to grow? The only thing that Jesus praised in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is faith. Faith. It's the only thing that counts. Faith expressing itself through love. And so we see this in verse 23. Uh, Faith is what, um, there we go, continue in it. Stable and steadfast. Don't shrink back from the hope of the gospel. You've been convinced of it. This is true in you. What Jesus has done is true. So be stable and steadfast in it. I want your faith. I want it to grow. So this morning, what are the ingredients that help you and I grow our faith? If it's time for you to grow up and to mature, to quit going through the motions and playing games, then what do you need to help you? From Colossians chapter 1, the verses we read, I want to give you three things. Three things, because I'm a preacher, that start with a T. The first is teaching. Verse 28, we read it. Paul says, we're teaching everyone with all wisdom. Can anybody think about what Jesus said about this? Think back to the the Great Commission. You you guys know the Great Commission? Go, go and teach, go and baptize, teach, teach all things that I've commanded in my name. Paul is saying that the mission of Jesus is our mission. And when we break from that mission... We get it all wrong. Now, let's contrast. I was reading. This is so fascinating. Mark 7, 7. I want to contrast. You'll have a chance to do this in your small group if you're following along with the sermon series. The group guides will be up in about an hour on our webpage. Mark 7, 7. They, religious people, (coughs) the people who thought they had it but were judgmental, the people who thought they were morally superior to other people, those people, Jesus said, they worship me in vain. And here's the kick. Their teachings are merely human rules. Merely human rules. Contrast that with what Paul says. Second Timothy, this is verses, uh, chapter 3 of 2 Timothy, verses 14 to 17. But as for you, continue in what you've learned and have become convinced of. Now, isn't it interesting, that phrase there? It would seem to be somewhat of an intellectual contradiction. You become convinced of it, but I want you to continue on. In other words, there's, it's in jeopardy. You're convinced of it, but you may not be, later, you may not be convinced of it. Anybody find that to be true? 
Like, can I tell you, maybe I talk about this too much. I'm like, okay, go ahead, go to the next point, Robert. But look, you can be convinced of something. You can see God work in your life. You can talk about an experience. You can share an answer prayer. You can share the feelings that you have. You're convinced of it. But later on, you'll need to remember that you were convinced of it so that you can continue to be convinced of it. Because you know those from whom you learned it. He grew up with Lois and Eunice. He grew, up, he grew up with a good mama and a good grandmom. And how from infancy, now you didn't stay in infancy, but from infancy, you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able, listen to these promises, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scriptures God breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Here we go. So that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work not coming and sitting and waiting for paid professionals to do the ministry but realizing that you're equipped to do the ministry i want to be careful in sharing this i did at the 9 30 but a few months ago someone came to see me a leader and this person's heart was broken for their our city for our state for our prisons And tearfully, I prayed over this person. And I prayed Matthew 25, because he had come to me with Matthew 25. And I just prayed it back over him. And this person is in a unique leadership position to bring awareness to this problem that is horrific and to do something about it. And so now, the last few weeks, I've been kind of smiling, not getting political. Everybody relax. I'm not getting political. I'm just going Jesus on you, okay? No party here, no partisan stuff. But so I've been smiling as I drive to Rankin County and see a billboard that says, Governor, do something about this. As I see the news report, as I see our governor go into the prisons with armed security and see the inhumane, deplorable conditions, and we think about Jesus who says, when you visit them and you love them, you do it to me. Now, there's nothing political about that. And I see the brokenness, and I think I get to pray over a man who is doing something and who's raising our awareness about this problem. And that's what the scriptures can do for us. It can break our heart, and it can send us into the world not hopeless, but can send us into seemingly hopeless situations with a hope that transcends the hopelessness of the situation. And that's what scripture can do. It can correct us, it can rebuke us. Does anybody like to get rebuked? Raise your hand if you do. I'll see you after class. And yeah, several years ago, uh, one of our staff, great young, woman on our staff team, very talented. She, um, she noticed that, this is when our church was at Dueling five years ago, when I was in a hurry, I'd run in and I'd park in the handicap and run in and grab something, visit a few minutes, head back out. And one day she had the gumption, the courage, the tenacity to say, hey, pastor, you know, you, you notice that you park in handicap and do you think that's being a good witness and a model of integrity uh, for us? And I thought, man, you gotta admire her courage for being able to, to confront me with that, to rebuke me for that. She's, she's no longer on our staff team, but you have, to, <laughs> you have to admire her courage that she would be willing to ask a question or two and offer a rebuke that corrected me, that convicted me. But listen, we're all on the equal playing field, and everybody in the room needs correction. You have blind spots, be corrected. You have broken places. Here's what you do with broken places. You go beyond a Sunday morning experience. You do that, but you get in a group. You'll hear Mallory and Daniel's story at the end of the service, but get in a group, get in community, and go, go to counseling. Go get help. 
talk about your broken places and be open and that's the effect. Listen, I wanna immerse myself in scripture because Jesus immersed himself in scripture. When he came and started his ministry, he was tempted and three times, three times he offers scripture to fight temptation. You can do the same. From the beginning of his ministry to the end on the cross, we sang the world behind me, the cross before me. Jesus on the cross offered scripture to express his heart to the Father. From the beginning to the end and all in between, he was immersed in scripture. It can bring hope to the discouraged. It can, and trust me, I know from personal testimony, it can bring wisdom to the foolish. Is read as a first book to little children, and it is read in countless hospitals to die to a dying man. It can bring us what we need. Here is an acronym that a pastor named Wayne Cadero, he pastors in Hawaii, much smarter man than me. He gave an acronym years ago called SOAP. Some of you may have heard this. It's a way to read the Bible. It's a way to take the teaching and do something about it. And the acronym flows from the truths of Ephesians chapter 5. Ephesians 5 talks about how we are to be washed, how we can experience regeneration, we can experience a newness, excuse me, and obedience in our lives if we're washed in the water of the Word. And so this acronym SOAP is Scripture. We read the Scripture. We take time. We hear it. You hear me say often, there's five ways to intake Scripture. I learned it when I was a teenager. Hear it, read it, study it, memorize it, and meditate on it. You can do all five of those. You can figure out how in your busy schedule, you can make that happen to get Scripture in you. We'll talk later about this, but in Colossians 3.16, it says, let the word of Christ dwell in you. Anybody know the rest? Dwell in you richly, not poorly, not half-heartedly, not sparingly, but richly, to richly dwell within you. And it, when, it's when you get filled with the truth of the word. And when that truth intersects with how you are fighting truth, only then can it have an effect in your life. Um, I know some of you drive some nice cars. Um, you know, if you drive a nice car, brand new, finely tuned, superbly engineered luxury automobile, you don't pull up to the Chevron and put low octane fuel in it. You put the high performance, more expensive kind of gas in that car. An old neighbor of mine um, was a bodybuilder, and you could just tell. You just look at his body. I mean, just massive, chiseled, ripped. Just He just was all about his physical appearance. Quite disgusting. He would wake up. He would wake up in the middle of the night. I don't even understand this. He would wake up in the middle of the night, and he monitored all of his food, all the food groups, all everything they put in his body was monitored down to the minutia of it all. And he would, he would wake up at certain intervals of the night and inject himself with protein because your, your body can absorb it and regulate. Again, I don't understand this, but that's what, that's what he would do. I've got a friend, she's a vet, a veterinarian, and she says that there's 50 different uh, ingredients that you can feed your cat that a cat needs to be a healthy cat. That there are certain antioxidants that are good for a dog's brain as they age. And here's what I want to say to you more. We are so painstakingly careful in what we put into our cars and our bodies and our pets, but we're remarkably careless what we fill our minds with. And here's the gift. Here's the gift, the ultimate gift that you can give in worship. Yourself. The person you're becoming can be your ultimate gift to God. And the person you're becoming will be largely impacted by what you're filling your life with and what you're filling your mind with. Now, we live in an age where we have access to the greatest sources of information available 
that the world has ever, ever known. But we're weakening and weakening in our ability to train our thoughts where to go. That muscle has been outsourced. We pay pay our preachers to read the Bible for us. We pay entertainers to entertainers and athletes. Too many of us are paying athletes to exercise for us. Our politicians are doing the dirty work for us. Our teachers are raising our children. Our children's ministry staff at church is discipling our kids. We are outsourcing so much of our lives in this age of specialization, and we're missing integrity. We're missing holistic living. We're missing what it means to use our mind, and our minds are meant to be feel why do we fill our cars and our bodies and the, the our pets bodies with so much good things and we're careful about it but we neglect what we're filling our minds with and i don't know that anything is going to determine who you become more than this jesus immersed himself in scripture and you're invited to do as well i'm gonna put two numbers on the screen the first says this one year the second says seven years those who've studied the american church have taught me, this may mean nothing to you, it means something to me, I want to try to translate it to you. But the first thing, one year, here's here's what they say about the American church, that someone can come to a church for a year. You have a year for someone to come to a church and only listen to the teaching. You know, sermon only, Sunday morning experience. But after a year, that person is going to feel like a pebble in a rock pile. They're going to feel like a grain of sand on the seashore. They're going to feel like a number in a crowded church pew unless they get to know some people unless they make some friends. Selfishly, that's one of the reasons we promote groups the way we do. We want you to stick around. We want there to be connected tissue. We want you to hang around and we want you to grow. But people will leave if it's teaching only. You need to connect to other people. Friendship, first teaching is really important. And I I would argue that it remains important, but it needs to be complemented with friendship, community, accountable relationships that'll help you grow. Seven years. I find this very fascinating because we've been a church for eight and a half years and a few of you have been around eight and a half years. But they say, no matter who the preacher is, you get bored with a guy after about seven years. If some of you are like, hey, I'm, I'm already bored. I've only been here seven months, all right? But listen, this comforts me to some extent. Just want to pass it on to you if you're tempted to badmouth me in the weeks ahead. It doesn't matter who it is. It could be your favorite preacher. I could be Andy Stanley, Matt Chandler, J.D. Greer, John Piper, Tony Evans, whoever it is, whoever your favorite is. Man, if you're not taking what you're hearing and doing something about it, you will get bored. And you will be tempted to blame the ineffectual preacher. Now, no doubt, I can be ineffective at times. But hear me, I want to shift a little bit to you because I want you to grow. I want you to look for a church that won't just feed you, that's a cliche, Feed me. I'm changing churches because they don't feed me. Find a church that won't feed you. They'll help you feed yourself where you can grow and you can experience Scripture. You can observe Scripture. If you go back to the acronym of SOAP, observation is very important. Susan and I were on vacation this summer in Colorado. And we were about to, we were in Denver for a couple of nights before we went north to Fort Collins to reminisce, get romantic and sentimental about where we met 24 years ago. And that night in Denver, I was kicking around and I texted her back in the hotel room and I said, hey, you want to go to a, the Denver Comedy Club tonight? Never a good idea for a pastor to text that to his spouse. And she, you know, it, the, the show started at 10 o'clock. The guy had been on Jimmy Fallon. We watched him on YouTube. Kind of funny. Let's go. And she said, yes, even though her bedtime is like 9 or 9.30 or she wants it to be her bedtime. So she met me. We, we went to the Comedy Club 
And I learned a couple of things there that night that if you cuss a lot, you can be really, really funny. Uh, profanity is just a funny thing, apparently. But I learned, I, we were walking back to the hotel room that night, and I, I was observing about comedians and thinking, you know, people are funny. People are really funny. I don't know that they're necessarily more brilliant than you and I, but they have a keen set of observational skills. They, they're not throwing a bunch of newfangled stuff in front of us. They're not doing astrobiological physics. They're doing things about life that we mostly, all of us experience, but they're observing things at a more discerning or deeper level. Anybody follow this? Maybe a bad illustration. But you, you're with me? So a comedian has a gift, but the gift is not so much skilled oratory and timing on stage. That's important, of course, but it's the observation. It's the observation to look at life, the same life we're living, and make observations about it. And you know that that can exist in us. You can develop that in you in Scripture. And you can begin to observe things and see things that can change your life. What are the ingredients? The goal is to grow. To grow what? To grow your faith. What are the ingredients? Teaching. Teaching that you get in you, fully in you, and that you begin to apply in your life. Uh, no matter the pre preacher, if you're not investing and inviting, if you're not learning about generosity, if you're not hearing hard truths that aren't meant to tickle your ears, but to challenge you so that you don't always say, I enjoyed the sermon today, you would leave here and say, that perplexes me, that bothers me, that confronts me on the way I'm living or not living. That's a good thing. And go do something about it. Like Go do something about it. The second thing, the second ingredient I want to give you is trials. You'll see in verse 24, Paul says that I rejoice in my sufferings. Now, is he, is he a glutton for punishment? Why in the world would you say this? Let me show you a picture of a German philosopher. He's an atheist. A German philosopher named Arthur Schopenhauer. And Arthur is a, a couple hundred years ago, was a teacher, professor, a writer, in Germany, and though long ago, um, his writing has affected people today. This is anybody, you know, I don't know if you have any philosophy majors or anybody that's dabbled in it. A couple of his books are behind me on, in my library, but he's had quite an impact on the modern world. One of his books that I was reading and preparing this sermon is called Studies in Pessimism. I tend to be an optimist, so this book was fascinating to me to read a little bit of the other side, the atheist thought of there is no God, there is no meaning to read from him and also the idea that existence is bleak. And that's what he says, existence is bleak. He questions humans' rationale to continue to propagate the species. Why have babies when life is so blind? We wouldn't send him, Laura, to the hospital to visit a couple and their new child at Fondren Church. But this guy was arrogant. He was proud. He slept with a pistol next to his bed. One of his sayings that became popularized is that we are little lambs in an open field under the watchful eye of a butcher. That life swings from a pendulum of pain to boredom. Either it hurts so bad or you're, just, you're numb. It doesn't hurt and you don't feel and there's no, there's no reason behind it. Arthur Schottmeyer was, um, had a woman outside of his flat in Frankfurt and she was making loud noises. He opened the door. Thankfully, he didn't have the pistol, but he pushed her down the stairs, and she was injured. She had a chronic illness for the rest of her life. 
And the court system there in Germany did not make him go to jail, but it made him compensate her quite handsomely for the rest of her life. She died some 20 plus years later. And no fool and true story, at her death, he went and got her death certificate. And in Latin, he wrote on her def- a copy of her death certificate, the woman is gone and so is my financial burden. He died lonely and selfish and miserable. But here's what I would ask for you today. This is not the cheery part of our sermon right now. But stay with me for a second. Why would someone who thinks existence is so bleak, who describes all of humanity as little lambs in an open field under the watchful eye of a butcher, why would someone have such an impact on really intelligent Americans today? You see, we have a choice. And behind our spiritual facades at times, behind our church going, behind the Christian cliches that we throw out, Life's going to test you, and it's going to make you at times wonder about the blandness of this existence. Here's a contrast that I want to put before you this morning. You can take Arthur Schopenhauer, the, the atheist, saying suffering is meaningless, or you can take what Paul would say, I'm sorry, what James would say, and Paul would say in his own words in other places, consider it joy. I rejoice, Colossae, I rejoice in my sufferings. Why, Paul? He's following Jesus and following other Jesus followers, speaking in the annals of history to you and I today. Is it just because something is happening to you? And here's the thing. You say, and I, look, I, I'm there. I've, I've been there, and I might be there again. Oh, there's so much pain. There's so much blandness. There's so much grind. There's so, much, so many tasks to this thing called life that we can be tempted to believe. We can be tempted to buy into that. And it might seem outrageously optimistic to hear somebody say, consider it joy, consider it joy, consider it joy. Is that not just, is that not too optimistic? Here's what I would say. The choice is yours. Abject, meaninglessness, or optimism. But I would say that it's optimism with a twist. And see that word consider? I want us to look at this for a second. If you have a phone, take a picture. I think we'll have this on our group page so you can... Pick it up this afternoon on our sermon site at fondernchurch.com. See the word consider? That word is used in these five passages. James 1, 2, consider it all joy when you face, and notice the language there, face, like face. You're going to face trials. You, it was, something will happen to you, and you will be staring it down right in your face. So what you do not want, but consider it. Philippians 2, 1. Consider other people more important than yourself. What? I thought Philippians was joy and happy. You're asking me to put other people in front of me? Acts 26.2, Paul, crucial moment, in front of King Agrippa. Acts 26.2, I consider it to be an honor to stand before. I am fortunate to stand before King Agrippa now. Hebrews 11.26, Moses, he considered it to be joyful. He considered being disgraced for God to be greater than the treasures of Egypt. Hebrews eleven twenty six. Y'all don't know if I'm quoting these verses right. You better check them out. And then Romans eight eighteen. Paul says, I consider, he's inviting you to consider that the present suffering will, is, is nothing compared to the future glory that will be revealed. Now, here's the thing. The English doesn't do it. It's why people study in the Greek. 
But in the English, the translation doesn't do it justice because consider really should mean reconsider. Like, I know you haven't considered this. I know you're starting to consider it. I know it's hard for you now. I'm asking you to now stop and reconsider because it doesn't seem like it would be true. But stop and reconsider. It's not cheery, outrageous optimism because nowhere does Scripture say act like something is not happening to you. In fact, what it's saying is that while something is happening to you, something could be happening in you. And so here's a choice I put before you this morning. This to me is a life changer. You could say, and this is what we want, we want to say genuine joy is great circumstances regardless of our character. Just great. I just want want great circumstances. I want the promotion. I want the job. I want the attention. I want the followers. I want things to go my way. I'm going to live my life based on circumstances, and I'm going to arrange my circumstances to have great joy. Uh, Character is something that, you know, yeah. But here's what God would say to you. Genuine joy is great character regardless of the circumstances because circumstances change. Character remains. Pain is temporary joy is eternal there is an alternative there is an alternative and it's a meaningless existence and paul is saying i rejoice in my sufferings colossi fondren church 2020 i rejoice in my sufferings so what are the ingredients the goal is to grow the goal is to grow your faith and your faith will grow if you hear teaching not stuff manufactured by man, but you hear teaching that can refine you and humble you and correct you, and then you do something about it that can change you, it can grow your faith. Listen, my faith has always grown when I took something, I took a promise that I read or heard from God's word and acted it in my life. I saw God prove it to be true, and what did I do? I said, wow. I said, wow, it's true. I want some more of that. My faith grew. But there are times when I'm wondering, God, where are you? And why does it hurt? And these trials, Peter would say, are fiery ordeals. Don't be surprised by the fiery ordeals. What happens when you experience a fiery ordeal? You got surprised. Why me? I thought I was blessed. So God will use teaching and he'll use trials to shape you and form you, to form the character in you. He wants to stretch you. Listen to me. Somebody needs to hear it today. I bet a bunch of you do. He wants to stretch you. He wants to grow you. He wants to form Christ in you. Jesus, to grow people's faith, gave them difficult assignments. No one has attended a school where the teacher will say, all right, learn this, and then look at them later, and you just tell the teacher, I learned it. Thank you. Give me an A. Like, they're going to test you. They're going to test you to see if it's in you. They're going to test you to see what you learned. And life is going to test you to see what is in you. So the ingredients are teaching, the ingredients are trials, and lastly, the ingredients are togetherness. Look what he says in verse 24. Hey, I'm rejoicing in my sufferings. Why? Because I love to be in this prison cell? For the sake of his body, that is the church. Jesus is building something, and he wants you to be a part of it. He wants us to share in this together, to not walk alone. And here's the thing about being together. Here's the thing about the body. You know what 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12 talks about, about there's in the body, just as the human body has an eye and an ear and a hand and a nose and a heart and all that. So we are a body and we need to be, we need to function together. 
We need to be careful about envy and jealousy. We need to be careful about public gifts. The early church was fighting. Y'all know why Paul talked about love? Not so guys like me could quote it at weddings like I do. He talked about love because the church was becoming envious of gifts that God had given, that they wanted to be like other people. And you be content with how God has made you. But jump into community and be a part of the body. Your faith will grow, listen, when you see other people's, when you see God demonstrate his faithfulness in the lives of other people, your faith will grow. And all of us have seen people of faith who disconnected from the community of faith. Your faith won't grow. You'll lose it. You'll leave it. You'll languish away from it. And so this morning, I want to say this. Are you committed to growing? I shared this with a 930. I probably shouldn't have, but I'll make the same mistake twice. But a guy came to see me months ago, and I noticed that they had not been in church here for a little while. And I had a premonition. I'm usually wrong, but I had a premonition. And he was waiting on me right behind us here and uh, in my office. He was outside. I had someone um, with me and they left and he came in and within five minutes, I'm like, ah, oh, you're leaving. You're leaving the church. And he explained why and I was trying to you know, take those darts and not um, be reduced to rubble. And, you know, I'm, I'm like you. Y'all know that, right? Like I have feelings. I'm flesh and blood. I get rejected and things hurt me like they do you. And man, I was, I was hurt. I wasn't hurt as I, much as I used to be hurt. I've grown a little bit, grown a lot, I would say. But it, the thing that he said to me that stung me, he said, man, you know, I, I have, I, I'm not growing. And listen, I want to do my part to be the best preacher and pastor, that if this is your church, you will grow. And so maybe I'm preaching out of insecurity here, but I, just, I want you to grow. I want your faith to grow. I don't want you to stay stagnant where you are today. But I want to create a hunger in you that you won't come weekly or every other week or whatever your level of frequency is and listen and not apply and listen and not get involved. God has so much more and he wants to stretch you and he wants you to grow. But here's what I want to say to you today. Stay or go, I hope you stay. But your growth, it's on you. It's your responsibility to grow. You own that. And I want to ask you today, is your faith growing? What can teaching from the Word do? What can soap do in your life? What can hearing, reading, studying, memorizing, meditating do for you when you apply it? What maturity and understanding and perspective do you need to get with suffering and trials in your life? And thirdly, man, lock arms with other people. Lock arms with others right here. We're trying to make it as easy for you to step into that as possible. We're, we're have our, we have our own growing pains in regard to that. But we're getting a little bit better each season. We want to make it easier for you to lock arms that we would be a people who are connected, that you could be a person who's growing. Can I be pastoral for just a minute if Fondry Church is your church? I want you to grow. And I want to be a part of that. Only a part of it. The rest, that's a you and God thing. But I want you to grow. Let me pray for us as Lauren and the team come on. We're going to close the service doing two things. We're going to take communion together as a church family. You're invited. If you're, uh, we say this, uh, probably every time we say this is not about 
denominational affiliation. We're non-denominational. It's not about church membership. You don't have to have signed a covenant, gone to membership to be, to take communion. It's, it's a, it's an act of worship for everyone who's made the confession that Jesus is Lord. So if it's not you, if you're a doubter, a skeptic, we're so glad that you're here. But you'll want to refrain from this today. If there's a child in the room that doesn't understand the gospel yet, that child will want to refrain from this. They can maybe follow with mom or dad or just stay at the pew. But we want you, every follower of Jesus, everyone who's called on the name of the Lord to be saved, to stand now and to follow in just a moment, to follow the person in front of you. There'll be stations of up front. Our deacons and friends will be serving as Scripture commands, serving bread, representing the body of Jesus, and juice representing the blood of Christ. And we take this in mind. We do this with a great sense of freedom and relief that we are not trusting ourselves to pay the penalty of our sin. We are not trusting ourselves to be all-powerful over the dominion of sin in our lives. But we are saying, Jesus, what you have done is enough. It is enough. We don't need to add to it. In fact, what we want to do is come to you with worship and gratitude today. So would you stand? And I'm going to pray over us as our team comes. Take the, take the bread. If you're new to Fondra and haven't done this before, a lot of germ freaks in the room. So just take a corner of bread. Just dip it in, not your fingers, but just dip a little slither of that bread into the cup. And you'll have the leader say to you, this is... Christ's body broken for you. This is Christ's blood shed for you. And you give a nod, give an amen, just as an act of physical worship. We do it this way here more times than not at Fondren so that you can move, that you can come to the elements and put more of you into this simple, ordinary, earthly act of worship to Jesus. God, thank you for dying for us. Uh, thank you that there's alternatives to naturalism and humanism, uh, to being little lambs, open in a field for butcher. And God, you took our sin. You took the weight of it in the person of Jesus. Good news, a great joy for all people. And God, we come today with gratitude. Reign supreme in our lives. Lord, teach us, instruct us, help us Hold us through our trials. Give us perspective. Chisel us. Grow our faith. And keep us walking with brothers and sisters in Christ. We have a heavenly Father. And that means we've got brothers and sisters that we should be devoted to. Grow us in Jesus. Amen.